Hello and welcome to the Pacific Wayfinder. I'm Ben Bohane. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the growing COVID concern in Papua New Guinea as it confronts a serious spike in cases there. We'll be getting an update and analysis from Dr. Henry Avaratore, Senior Lecturer at the Australia Pacific Security College. Henry recently moved down to Canberra from his Port Moresby home, but is still keeping a close eye on the situation there in PNG. And recently, I also spoke to Dr. Paula Vavilli at the Secretariat of the Pacific Community, or SPC, in Noumea. As one of the most senior health officials in our Pacific region, he is well-placed to say just how well the Pacific is doing, generally speaking, more than a year since the epidemic first came into our region. But first to Dr. Henry. Can you tell us what the situation's like in Papua New Guinea right now? With the current low level of testing, we really don't know what, how, how big the problem is. Um, so I, I would assume that the numbers that we have are just tip of the iceberg. Uh, and in saying that, I think that we might not have reached a peak yet. But in the early period when they implemented strict lockdowns, it kept the, uh, in the beginning, the number of people infected was low, but they applied very strict lockdown and it kept the numbers down. It's when they started opening up or relaxing the, uh, the lockdown and the measures, uh, that's when it picked up. Now they've gone into what they call nuclear passing. Um, and nuclear passing in top piecing is basically letting to live with COVID. It's, uh, either it's, it could either be being pragmatic that you know, our health capacity is as such, we won't be able to deal with it. COVID is already here, so we just have to learn to live with it and uh, apply the COVID measures that have been announced by the authorities and, and stick to them. The challenge is making sure that people comply. And, you know, I just came back from PNG in, in January. I was there for a whole nine months or something when COVID was there. And people don't comply. Very few people comply. And that's a big challenge for government. Right now, you know, they had the late Grand Chief Sir Michael Somari's funeral, and they relaxed COVID measures. There's a by-election now in, in NCD, and just how they are going to be able to enforce those measures is a challenge because everybody's campaigning and people are gathering. And the way of life for Papua New Guineans is it's really, you know, they all, they live as a community, they live as a family, everybody lives together. So it's it's... It's it's a challenge. I don't know when, you know. I think I think we're still yet to see where where it might peak, um, and it'll take a long time, probably to to deal with it. But I think they have they. Um, when I hear them talk about how they dealt with the missiles uh, uh, problem, they they do they do have the capacity to deal with it. If they if they really you know. And I I think you know I can just um, from that conversation I think they can do it but they've got to really get people to comply. I guess we can only base COVID figures really on the amount of testing that's going on as well to get an accurate picture. What are some of the constraints at the moment around testing? I think, and this is where Australia and other aid agencies could look at supporting PNG. They don't have the capacity to do the testing. So one, not many people are going to do the testing. So first problem is to get people to test. And when you compare PNG with <clears throat> situation in Fiji, thousands of people are turning up for testing in Fiji, whereas that side number is not happening in PNG. So first thing to do is get people, encourage people to go and do testing. 
then you have the second problem, which is the capability or the capacity of testing uh, institutions to be able to deliver do the testing and deliver the results back within a better time frame than at present, which is two weeks. That's very long. So by the time the results come back, the person who might have been infected has already gone and transmitted the virus to other people. So that's compounding the problem. Um, and then you really need to help PNGs really build the laboratory infrastructure so that they can be able to do the testing, not only for COVID, but other infectious diseases that might arise in the future. We know that PNG is receiving vaccines, whether it's from Australia or COVAX through the UN and other, other donor agencies. How How is the actual vaccine rollout going in PNG? Are those vaccines being delivered actually getting put into arms pretty quickly or are you sensing that there's considerable delays before it goes into people's arms? I really can't tell what the play of the, you know, the situation is on the ground. But, I mean, there was a slight, I think, delay in getting things going. And I think it needed political leadership. So, you know, getting political leaders like the prime minister himself to be vaccinated, to show that leadership for people to step up. Um, and so I think it has, it has ramped up a little bit, but it needs a lot of education because there is some resistance to vaccines and a lot of education is needed. And, you know, PNG is a, a language, a place with 800 languages. So communication will be an issue for them. And uh, I think one of the approaches that they are taking now, the government is taking, is to get champions to champion the vaccination programs, which is a really good strategy to go about with and getting the prime minister or certain political leaders or champions to be vaccinated, photographed vaccinated or filmed vaccinated, televised vaccinated, and that you know circulated through the media so that people do see that there are people stepping out and that hopefully should encourage others to come in and get vaccinated. Yes, we'll come to vaccine hesitancy, I think, in a little bit. But um, I just wanted to get across as well uh, the real challenges in, in Papua New Guinea. You know, it's a, it's a big country with a large population. You've got mountains, jungles, forest. What makes PNG particularly challenging when it comes to disease control, you know, the COVID infection rates, and then also logistically, you know, getting the vaccine rollout? Okay, I think the number one problem would be compliance. It's, there's a, it's a huge population, as you rightly pointed out, there's 8 million people. And getting 8 million people to comply with government regulations is a huge task and a challenge. And I suppose that's probably the reason why they went on a, uh, using law enforcement sector to support with the, with the COVID uh, efforts, uh, responses to COVID. Um, the geography, as you rightly pointed out, is, is difficult. There's no road linking Port Moresby to all the centers in throughout the country. So vaccines all have to be moved either by air. Mainly, you've got to go by air to move vaccines around. That's an expensive exercise. Um, then, you know, that's transport. Um, so that all compounds, um, you know, the, the challenge that pandemic gives to the, to the, to the government or the authorities. And... It's been almost, well, it's going almost going towards two years. And you've got to sustain that momentum. And, you know, over this duration, people do get tired and there's bound to be fatigue uh, showing up. And as recently, the health minister was saying that complacency is starting to uh, enter into the efforts of 
controlling the pandemic. And that's probably the biggest uh, concern, complacency. Once complacency uh, gets in, into the way people work, then it just allows the problem to re, re-emerge and, 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 and grow again. Let's talk about how PNG's COVID task force is structured. I notice in a lot of countries you'll have the chief medical officer fronting those press conferences daily to give the numbers. PNG's taken a slightly different approach. Uh, I believe it's the police commissioner who's overall in charge of the task force. How how is the, that structure operating in terms of PNG, and why and why do you think they've they've gone for more of a Papua New Guinea police constabulary involvement in that task force? I think they've gone that or taking that approach. Um, one because. I think the challenge is for compliance and putting a law and order person in charge uh, comes with that structure of getting a law and order way of doing things. Um, it, it's created, I think, problems. Uh, one problem is as a lawman, you struggle or will find difficulty in trying to explain epidemiological issues around pandemics. That is really a field for medical professionals. So you see in other countries, they in the Pacific, they use medical doctors as the pandemic controller, um, and the law enforcement comes at the back to support them. Uh, I think one of the explanations for using law enforcement was because of the, the, uh, oh, the capacity around health infrastructure. Um, that you know they were already clear that we don't have the health infrastructure to be able to deal with it, so taking on a law enforcement approach might help with trying to get compliance amongst the population. But that's 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 been one of the biggest challenges, and I think the com- control of police or the control of the pandemic has seen how hard it is in its role. And there have been calls from particularly the opposition that this role should really be given to a medical person to take leadership and that the pandemic controller goes on his role of law enforcement because, I mean, there are other law and, of, law and order issues that the country has to deal with, and his role is probably better situated elsewhere and leave the matter, which is really a medical issue, to a medical professional to handle. But that's really a decision of government, and they've taken it. They've structured it in such a way there where they have a center in the National Capital District, and they work through public health authorities across the districts, uh, provinces. So with 22 provinces, they will have 22 public health authorities linked up to the National uh, Pandemic Center. And so that's how they are uh, delegating it down. And you have the CEO of public health, uh, the public health authorities, CEOs leading the work on the ground, also supported with the uh, provincial police commanders. So it's it's like a law enforcement health cooperating or participating in a a situation that requires all these parties to work together. How they work? Um, that's a matter for us to probably investigate a bit further. And they might probably in the future review or look at how they have done this and probably come up with a a strategy that might be better in the future. Custom and culture play a really important role across the Pacific Island and in in terms of the ways communities respond to certain issues and, and even crises. Do you think there's any particular cultural aspects in Papua New Guinea that is affecting or impacting the way they're dealing with the COVID crisis? I haven't heard, but I think one area that might have, have come into play, might have come into play, is sorcery. Um, that 
COVID is a virus and it might be associated with magic or sorcery. Um, I don't, I haven't heard much, but I think that could also play to a factor why, you know, people are sick and they think that he or she maybe, you know, somebody might have done magic. Yeah. So that, that could potentially be a factor in why people may not be turning up to hospitals. And there's all this belief that um, that you can use uh, local traditional herbs to cure minor ailments. So that's really kind of like, a, you know, what they call health-seeking behavior. So people tend to go and look for other traditional herbs. And that's been quite a, there's been quite a lot of discussion on Facebook. And people have been saying they've been using herbal medicines, etc. But I think that health, you know, uh, health-seeking behavior may need to change over time because we get sick because there is a medical explanation to why we get sick. And that is probably more educational as people uh, begin to understand why you get sick uh, and then might change in the future. But that's a very, very big, uh, what you call, mindset change thing that is will take a while to break down. It seems uh, PNG's first infections came from over the border in West Papua. Is that border now secure? Has the situation in West Papua also impacted PNG's situation? There are concerns, ongoing concerns from Papua New Guineans who uh, live particularly the West Pacific provinces, Vanimo, and um, along the border from Vanimo down to Western province. Um, there is concern about more people who are infected with the virus coming into the borders. And because, as you know, the border is very porous, um, government has, has, has taken um, effort at patrolling the borders, but there's only as much they could do. And people are moving back and forth. And so the border still poses a threat to PNG, uh, from, particularly from West Papua side, where the infection rates are probably far higher than what is in PNG. So it still remains a problem. Um, Solomon Islands is not particularly uh, conscious about the border between PNG and the Solomons, where recently one uh, person who appeared to have traveled on a boat to Solomon Islands was found to have been infected with the virus. So that threat, not only coming from Indonesia into PNG, but the threat from in, uh, PNG into other parts of the region, Solomon Islands, including Australia, is, is, is it there. Is PNG investing enough in its health system and hospitals and medical staff at this particular moment? I think the current situation with COVID-19 has shown for Papua New Guinea and its government the real need to invest in its health infrastructure, not only with buildings and equipment and medical technology and things like that, but they also really need to invest in training human resources doctors, nurses, lab technicians, people who work in the medical area. And that investment must be, must be made. I think the comments that I'm hearing from PNG is that they're using this experience now to really see how it has tested the health infrastructure and what they can do to build the health infrastructure to prepare themselves, not only for pandemics, but to deal with own, you know, other diseases that they uh, deal with. And I think it's a lesson that has come at a cost to some lives, but it's a good lesson that I hope the government of PNG will take note of and really invest in strengthening its health infrastructure because it's, it's people's lives that it's dealing with. 
Yeah, even before COVID hit, we know the PNG has particularly high rates of TB, for instance, uh, and also that's the particular strains of TB that don't respond to normal treatment, which is a concern. You've got malaria, you've got a whole range of diseases and, and, and issues, medical issues. So beyond COVID, are you, is there hope that Papua New Guinea, working with its partners, can also get on top of some of these other diseases that maybe haven't been looked at as much as they should have been. Yeah, in uh, early in the early in the period when COVID arrived, there was a lot of conversation and discussion that COVID was um, taking up a disproportionate amount of resources to address it. And of course, people are raising questions: Why, why can't we deal with HIV/AIDS? We have. The, why can't we deal with TB? I guess the lesson now is that with COVID, I hope that PNG government and the Pacific governments. Um, take a really big, broader approach to dealing with its diseases and illnesses. Eh? And uh, and I suppose take the same level of intensity that they have taken in terms of dealing with COVID on those other diseases because we all want to have a healthy population. But it also goes down to preventative health measures, not just the reactionary uh, treatment to a disease that emerges. Preventative health must be at the forefront of uh, the health strategy. But also like now that it's all in place, it's a lesson that, you know, you've got to help get, get, uh, build a health infrastructure to a situation where you can be able to deal with potential pandemics that for now and that might come in the future. Because I don't think this is the one and only pandemic that will hit. You know, they, like what we had with measles, there are other diseases that will come that might explode, that might mutate, that might challenge health infrastructure, health workers' ability to deal with these problems. So it's a, it's a, it's a lesson, a good lesson for everyone in the region and uh, a lesson that can be built on to strengthen health infrastructure. Another issue that's confronting PNG is something that people are calling an infodemic. Um, how serious would you say is misinformation and disinformation in P PNG around COVID and, and how that's impacting, for instance, the vaccine rollout? It's a serious problem. And I have read myself on Facebook the uh, level of misinformation that's been circulated and the uh, and unfortunately you know facebook has no filters and everybody as the minister for health was saying you just once you're on facebook you have a phd and that 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 is a really uh, classic statement of what the situation is in and so social media is a is a big one that allows all this information that's unfiltered to go out to people and unfortunately people also don't filter the information that's coming through them they just accept it at face value and, and go with it. Um, so there's, there's going to be a lot of effort that's going to be put in trying to counter this misinformation and disinformation that's coming up. And it's not, a, it's not easy. It's, it's going to be a big, big, big challenge for anyone who wants to try. And, and I think medical doctors um, could play a big role in this it, by explaining diseases clearly, by explaining why immunization is important and that there are side effects from getting immune, like, you know, the vaccinations of all kinds could also give you some side effects. And those things need to be explained clearly. And how they will do it is a challenge. But if they can do that, I think they could uh, help with all this disinformation and the misinformation that's, that's, uh, that's arising. And that has to come from experts. Do we know if government and 
local media, including the public broadcasters like NBC? Are there any sort of public awareness campaigns that are going on? Is the government getting behind some advertising campaigns, using media to to create that true information people can trust? I think government has made a significant amount of investment in this area. Um, and I do see the deputy controller of the pandemic going live on radio and TV. There's a show that happens, I think, every week on TV. Um, and there's radio, uh, the main radio station and, you know, the FM stations that are all working to try and uh, explain the disease, explain to the people what they're doing. Um, and so, you know, I think that's been really ramped up. I think government has done a lot of work in that area, and they should be credited for that. Um, but they have this whole uh, mountain of misinformation that they need to deal with. And I, I think, you know, you can only do as much. And, and you know, PNG is a very big place. Telecommunication is a problem. Uh, not all the rural areas will have radio stations. So, you know, TV is fine, but it can only go to an urban area. Maybe mobile reach is probably increasing or improved. But I think radio, they are, the reach out to the rural areas is probably probably better. And that's probably the only way they can get things going. You know, it's like, you know, uh, somebody while I was reading Facebook was saying, in a time of elections, the ballot box will be taken right to your village. So they should do the same thing. In a time of COVID, they should take the vaccine and whatever that needs to be done with COVID right down to the rural areas. The same philosophy that government supply during elections must also apply in COVID situations. I think that was a really good, you know, thing. If governments want power, they'll make sure they get the vote from every single human being down at the most remote area. If they want to protect the human beings, their people's life, then they should go down right to the rural areas and protect the one individual that's out there on a remote island as well. We saw initially that there was also, you know, speaking of vaccine hesitancy, we saw that that was also you know, even occurring among doctors and nurses and health staff, um, which meant that they weren't getting vaccinated as quickly as perhaps they should have. Has that changed? Are you noticing now that the health staff across PNG are now getting vaccinated and there's less vaccine hesitancy even among the health professionals? Well, the stats that I was showing earlier from the 13th of May, there's only 2,000 health workers that have been vaccinated. So if if there are, say, 4,500 health workers, then that's really probably 1% or 10% of the you know health workforce. So I think the problem is still there. Um, um, and I, I think part of the problem was because different medical professionals were giving, were giving different differing opinions. And I, I think that might have caused a lot of confusion among health workers and ordinary people who is, you know, right. Uh, if everybody spoke the same language and one voice saying, you know, vaccination is important, of course there are side effects, but that's normal. Some have some reaction to it, some don't. And so those kind of explanations have to come from one person, one, you know, respected medical person to take it forward. We, in the, I think when the vaccine was going to be rolled out, there was all these conversations around its efficacy and its safety and all that. And there were different opinions coming, which I think might have caused the uh, hesitancy, I suppose, amongst health workers themselves. But, you know, with health workers, one expect them to be, you know, aware of 
what vaccines are. But it seems that they also need to be educated about vaccines themselves and probably take the leadership. Because once they take the first step, everybody follows them. Yeah. Okay. And just finally, Australia's provided OSMAT teams and certain amount of vaccines also to PNG. Is there anything more that Australia and PNG's neighbours could be doing to assist PNG in this time of crisis? I think the areas that have been pointed out by some medical professionals is that um, they could help with testing um, and the testing capability. So I think that's area that really needs to be done so that we can get a really a true picture of what the situation is like on the ground. Um, I suppose coming with that also requires a bit of support around messaging um, and encouraging people to come to be, to be tested. Because once you get tested, then you can contact trace and you can isolate if a person is sick and you can also treat a person if that person is sick. Um, and that's really important. Another area that's been uh, been suggested for help is you know building the laboratory infrastructure, um, building the capacity to, to test, but be training people to be able to train uh, do the testing and the equipment that's necessary to do it, and then reducing the time in which uh, results are returned to people. Eh? I think those are the two uh, areas that I can think off the top of my head now that, uh, but yeah, that's really where the issue is. I think Australia and New Zealand are ready to provide as much, as many vaccines as possible, but they need to do the basics first because then that, you know, testing is a basics. And once you are going to establish where the problem is, then you can be able to probably develop a strategy that targets where the problem is largest and, 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 and work accordingly downwards. Yeah. Thanks, Dr. Henry, for that perspective on PNG. Dr. Paola, obviously there remains concern about case numbers in some countries, but overall, how well is the Pacific doing as a region? Well, from a purely medical perspective, I think the countries have done very well, that the region has done very well. Uh, by and large, um, the countries have limited the number of cases into the countries. Uh, to date, over 20,000 cases uh, into the Pacific. And a lot of those cases were in French Polynesia and Guam because, uh, uh, as you know, the uh, border control in those countries was a little bit more open than, than many of the others. But for the countries that maintained the closure of their borders or quite strict travel restrictions at the border, uh, they, they have been able to control the number of cases that have been coming into the country. So from a medical perspective, uh, public health perspective, uh, we can say that the, the Pacific region uh, as, a, as a region did very well in, in limiting the number of cases that came into the country. Of course, uh, if you look at the flip side of economic um, development and, and uh, impact for the countries. It's a, that's a different component of, uh, of the equation and of the story of COVID-19, which, which uh, perhaps we can discuss later. But from a public health perspective, uh, the Pacific, we could say, did uh, quite well in, in limiting the spread of the disease. Is there any comparison at all between how the Pacific has dealt with COVID compared to the Spanish flu 100 years ago? Yeah, I think with the numbers of deaths that uh, you have in the Pacific, the Spanish flu was obviously uh, more more people died from it, and it was uh, mortality was was much higher. Uh, we know that the figures from uh, other countries for for uh, COVID nineteen, and in fact, what we've seen in in the Pacific countries from the numbers of cases that we've had, the uh, fatality rate from uh, COVID nineteen for the for the number of cases that we have is about one percent, and so. 
certainly lower than uh, what we had for for Spanish flu. But you know the, the lessons that that we we learned is, is is the same things. If you avoid exposure, then your your risk is uh, is much lower. And, and fortunately for the countries, with all the knowledge that we've uh, gained over the years, they have been able to institute uh, processes and systems to be able to control the borders and and limit the, the influx of uh, COVID nineteen in the top three countries. We're seeing vaccines starting to roll out across the region. But what do you see as being the major challenges for the region in the year ahead? Well, the, the challenges for, well, if we just talk very briefly about the challenges before the COVID uh, pandemic hit the countries. And, uh, you know, uh, if we look at a couple of areas in particular, the challenges in, in being able to test for, for COVID-19. Before COVID-19 came into the countries, only uh, into the Pacific, only five countries were able to, to test properly. For, uh, for COVID-19, and, and these are uh, Guam, French Polynesia, uh, Fiji, uh, New Caledonia, and Papua New Guinea. But over the past year, uh, a lot of work has been done by many of the partners, including SPC and, and many others, uh, to support all the countries. And, and it is anticipated that uh, by the middle of the year, uh, most of the countries, if not all, will be able to test for, for COVID-19 in the country. So this is a significant uh, development for health system strengthening in, in the uh, sphere of laboratory testing. Of course, as we know that going forward, this was going to be a challenge because if you open up your borders, you've got to be able to test properly. And, and fortunately, this is a challenge that has been um, that seems to be addressed and will be addressed adequately. One of the other challenges that we've seen is uh, capacity of the countries to be able to deal with patients in case in the event that they got uh, sick. And one of the good things that uh, we've been able to do at SPC with um, support from uh, Australia and uh, other partners, including the Royal College of um, Royal Australasian College of Surgeons is to provide some training opportunities for nurses. And so, uh, Starting about media last year and, and over the next year, we'll be able to train uh, through uh, Australia College of Nursing over 200 nurses. Uh, who Some have done a search critical care training uh, and some will be involved in, a, in, in training for perioperative uh, nursing as well as critical care nursing. And so it's been good in the sense that we're not just responding to the daily needs, for example. But over the past uh, year and a bit, we've been able to, to assist the countries in building their systems. And the health system strengthening things that we've been doing will not only enable them to deal better with the current COVID-19 pandemic, but it will also place them in a much better position to deal with things uh, going into the future. The lab work, for example, will not only be able to uh, allow them to test for COVID-19, but also look at other diseases which are already present in the, in the country at, at one time or another, like dengue fever, leptospirosis, uh, Zika, chikungunya, uh, where many of the countries would normally have had to send their, their specimen to New Zealand or Australia or one of the other countries, you know, Fiji or, or New Caledonia or Guam. But now they'll be able to do it in country. So it's been a very good uh, uh, <clears throat> for the countries in, in that regard. So as, as we will appreciate, while it's been, uh, terrible that COVID-19 is around. It's also been a, a very good opportunity to strengthen and develop the, the systems. Going forward, uh, in, in looking at challenges, uh, vaccination, of course, is, is something that the countries uh, hope we would be able to, uh, to progress uh, quickly. 
Uh, we know that uh, some of the countries have already started. The U.S. Uh, is already providing a lot of support for U.S. affiliated states. Uh, France is providing a lot of support to its overseas countries and territories. And uh, New Zealand and Australia are providing a lot of support to the remaining countries uh, in the Pacific to be able to, to put in place uh, mechanisms to allow them to get their populations vaccinated. So going forward, that is a challenge, getting that uh, to happen. As, as we know, the unfortunate thing about this is that uh, because COVID 19 affects all the countries in the world. Everybody wants the vaccine, and, and uh, for some time at least, there will be a, a supply issue with, with the vaccine to be able to be distributed to all the, the countries. The other major challenge, as we all know, is, is the economic challenge that uh, countries are facing. Uh, we, we know that the countries, particularly those that uh, rely heavily on, on tourism, Fiji, Vanuatu, Cook Islands, French Polynesia, uh, these countries have been. Uh, uh, heavily impacted by the, the COVID-19 and whilst all the countries have been impacted uh, some way or another, uh, the countries that uh, rely significantly on, on, on tourism uh, are, found, are finding it uh, quite difficult. I think one of the things that, uh, that would be worth mentioning in terms of challenges is, is we know that uh, mental health and well-being is a, is a significant challenge for, for many people during this time and, and uh, this is not limited to the Pacific by any means. But we're seeing that uh, that people who um, are impacted, it, they could be uh, people who are stuck overseas. There are, I would say, thousands, uh, tens of thousands of, of Pacific Islanders who are who are still overseas and still trying to make their way home, even after a year after the, uh, the lockdowns. And so, mental health uh, is is obviously an, an issue. And you know, in the countries, of course, we we know that uh, people's well-being in economic well-being is uh, impacted for many, many people in the Pacific. And, and this also impacts the, the mental health and well-being of these people. So, I mean, if, if, you, if we broadly look at the, the, the challenges that, that are raised, it's, it's how we can roll out a vaccination um, regime and, and program that will cover all the countries in, in a relatively, in a reasonable amount of time. I mean, economic uh, impact has been significant and, and mental health and well-being, I think, uh, are, are key challenges. How important is it for governments in the region to be focused on their vaccine rollout strategy now? Well, it's important. In fact, uh, many of the countries already have a, a vaccine plan. Uh, one of the things that uh, we are fortunate about in the Pacific is by and large, Pacific Island countries and territories are very good at vaccinating uh, people. Uh, immunizations for, for other diseases, as you know, is, is an ongoing uh, program for, for babies um, or adults in, in some instances. And, and most uh, countries in the Pacific uh, do immunization uh, quite well. Health, as Pacific health practitioners, uh, you know, immunization is, is something we, when we, we talk to people from outside the region, it's something we like to talk about because by and large our immunization rates uh, for many of the Pacific countries are better than most of our Western uh, um, developed nations. And, and so in looking at uh, getting the the vaccination programs going. The challenge would be getting the vaccines to come to the countries. Uh, most of them would have an existing uh, plan for COVID-19 or are in the final stages of developing one with support from uh, primarily WHO and UNICEF who, who uh, lead the work in this space. But uh, I think uh, all the countries are quite confident that once they're able to have access uh, to uh, the vaccines, is, it, it would be rolled out quite well, relatively well. Many thanks, Dr. Paula, for your insights. 
and to Dr. Henry of Arature for his update on PNG. That wraps up another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder. You can find us on our website, pacificsecurity.net, and our Facebook page for the Australia Pacific Security College. Our theme music is the song Tabaran by Not Drowning Waving. And thanks to Liam Taylor for producing this episode. I'm Ben Bohane. Tune in next time to the Pacific Wayfinder.